So for the past few weeks, we've been going through the book of Romans, and we're doing so as well today. And today, as we look through the book of Romans, we're looking at Romans chapter 4, starting with verse 13. So we're looking at the second half of Romans chapter 4. And what you'll see and what we'll all see as we look through this portion of Scripture is that this is a portion of Scripture that speaks about the fact that God does impossible things, naturally speaking, impossible things. But we're, t- we're called to trust God, we're, tr- we're called to believe Him for the impossible. So if you would take your Bibles and open up to Romans chapter 4, and I'll read from verse 13 down to verse 25, but this is what it says in the passage. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to spend time together worshiping you today and looking at this portion of Scripture and meditating on the things that you've revealed to us here. And Lord, as we could see the variety of things that you mentioned in this portion of Scripture, one of the things that certainly stands out to us is the fact that you do impossible things, things that we do not have the strength to do, things that in many respects we would maybe even be skeptical could happen, and yet when we look at a portion of Scripture like this, you remind us that you're the one that can accomplish things that no one else can. And so, Lord, we pray that as we just think about the content of these verses today and as we talk about them for a brief time together, we pray, Lord, that you'd convince us more and more of your power and your desire to work miraculously in our lives. And we commit this time to you now, Lord. We pray that you'd speak to our minds and speak to our hearts and help us by your grace to live out what we read in this portion of Scripture today. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a curious trait that we all possess, every single one of us, uh, and it has a habit of showing up in our lives in very interesting ways. And that trait is this. In general, we tend to prefer to place our trust 
in the things that we can observe, the things that we can see. We want our eyes to be convinced of something before our hearts are willing to trust in its reliability. Now, in many respects, that makes sense. Um, throughout my house, I have I saw a nice deal of the uh, on these things on uh, on Amazon, and so uh, I bought a whole bunch of night lights that uh, do a really good job of illuminating my house through these LED light night, night lights. And in fact, if you notice, there's a few of them. There's one here, there's one here, there's a couple in the entryway here. I like them so much at home, I bought another set to put around the church because a lot of times now during this time of year where it gets extra dark, when I leave, it's dark in here. And uh, I was crashing into chairs and, and stuff like that when the lights were all off. And I was like, you know what I need in here? Night lights. And so I splurged and paid, you know probably a good like 99 cents a piece for them, and um, they work great. But throughout my house, I've got these things. I like them. I've got them here, plugged in all over the place in the church. If you come to my house in the evening, you'll notice that along the steps that lead up to my front door, there are some solar lights. So I put those in so that when I have company, they can also see. Um, When you pull into my driveway or when I pull into my driveway, there's a light that lights up. It's on a sensor. If you're in my car, you'll notice that I try and keep my windshield reasonably clean and I don't have anything dangling from my mirror because I don't like my view obstructed. Or maybe when you've been on a plane, do you ever ask yourself the question, um, why are there windows on this plane? Do you want to see out? More people do than don't. So they have windows on a plane. Or if you're buying real estate, more value, you know, a real estate, one of the things that makes real estate most valuable is the view. If you find a property that has a nice view, that increases the value compared to a property that doesn't have as nice of a view. We like to see things. Sight is a gift from God. It's a sense that He's given to us, and we like to use it, and it becomes a pattern for living that we begin to appreciate, and we even invest our money in it because we like it so much. But in regard to our faith, God is honored when we trust Him for what we cannot yet see. He's glorified, Scripture reveals to us, when we just take Him at His word. When He could just say something, we don't have to see it yet. When we could just believe Him because of what He has said. Anyone can walk by sight. You know, anyone that has the natural gift of sight can walk by sight. But not everyone is willing to walk by faith. And God has promised us many things that cannot be facilitated through natural means that He wants us to trust Him with. So naturally speaking, when we look at His promises, His promises seem impossible, but God wants us to trust Him to do the impossible. So what does it look like to have that kind of faith? Instead of walking by sight, what does it look like to walk through this world, in this world, with that kind of faith? What kind of impossible things has God already demonstrated that we can confidently believe when He speaks? That's the type of concept or subject that's brought up in this section of Romans chapter 4. And this chapter lists a variety of things that, naturally speaking, would be impossible. But God can believe. He can be believed to accomplish these impossible things. And one of the impossible things that it points out is that God can make one man into many nations. He can make one man into many nations. Let me reread verse 13 and a couple verses after it. But it says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, Faith is null and the promise is void. 
For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Let's pause there for a second. So last week we gave a little bit of a synopsis of the life of Abraham because Paul brings him up in a variety of spots throughout the book of Romans. Largely here we, we see that you know Abraham being one of Paul's focuses in this particular chapter. But during the course of Abraham's life, very interesting life to read about and observe when we're going through the book of Genesis. But during the course of his life, Abraham received several promises from God. And one of those promises had to do with his offspring. Abraham was told that effectively he would have more descendants than could be easily counted. Or, you know, humanly speaking, we would look at that and we'd say, could they even be counted at all? And the imagery that the Lord used to reveal this truth to Abraham was to compare his descendants to the stars of the sky. Now, in our context here, we have so much electric light, um, you know, illuminating our streets and around our houses that it makes it a little bit of a challenge to fully appreciate how many stars can be visible when you just get a little bit beyond that. But do you ever go out maybe to a farm or to an area that's a little bit more rural and you notice at night just how much the sky lights up? And isn't it fascinating to look at uh, this past summer, we had the privilege to camp together as a family, and we were pretty much off the beaten path. And just looking up at the sky at night was one of my favorite things to do during the course of that week, and just appreciating all the things that I don't normally get to see. And you could see so many stars being lit up, and um, it was beautiful. It was fascinating to see. And the imagery that the Lord used to reveal the, the concept of the fact that Abraham would be blessed with numerous offspring. The Lord told Abraham that if you could count those stars, that's what your offspring's going to be like. And then the other imagery he uses, it's like, all right, picture yourself walking on a beach and you look around at the grains of sand. It's like, if you can count those grains of sand, then you'd be able to number your offspring. His children were going to be that numerous. That's what Abraham's descendants were going to look like. That's what God had promised him. But it was interesting because when God promised this to Abraham, Abraham was already an old man. And Abraham did not have any children yet. And yet God was making this kind of promise to Abraham. In fact, it tells us part of it in Genesis 15, 5, it says, and he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars. You are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Like that. So imagine being Abraham hearing that kind of promise from God. It's an amazing blessing to be granted by the Lord. But did Abraham do something to deserve that kind of blessing? And it was Abraham being rewarded for something that he had done. You know, did he did he do something that God was like, all right, that's that, you know, that's exactly the, the thing on the checklist or these five things on the checklist, Abraham got that accomplished. Now I will reward you with all these rewards and things like that. You know, had he met some divine checklist before the Lord promised him this? Was he keeping the requirements of the Old Testament law when God promised him these things? No, he wasn't. In fact, the Old Testament law was still hundreds of, wet, uh, hundreds of years away from being written down. God was telling Abraham something in this portion of Scripture that, naturally speaking, was an, an impossible thing. How was an old, childless man going to become the father of many nations? Well, it was going to happen because God was going to do something miraculous. And Abraham believed that God could and would do this 
even before he saw it fulfilled. And true to his word, the Lord delivered on his promise. Abraham did not earn this blessing. God gave this blessing as an act of grace. Abraham trusted God to do what God said he would do. And I want to point something out so that this doesn't just seem like an interesting Bible trivia tidbit from history. There's a direct application to that promise that God gave Abraham to you and to me that I want us to notice. Because there's a twofold fulfillment to what we see in that portion of Scripture. Not only was his promise going to be fulfilled in the natural sense, so naturally speaking, many children would be born to Abraham through his descendants. Millions and millions and millions and millions of people. But spiritually speaking, Scripture tells us there's an application to this promise as well. Meaning, all who come to God through faith in Jesus Christ are also counted or reckoned as children of Abraham, the man who gave us this vivid example of faith. Let me show you what I mean from Galatians 3. In Galatians 3, verse 29, it says this, And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs. And God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. What promise to Abraham belongs to you? This promise, ultimately, that you'll be made righteous in the eyes of God through faith. So we can see that God blessed Abraham in both a natural sense and in a spiritual sense. He made one man into many, many nations, not just naturally, but also spiritually. And by faith in Christ, we're counted as part of the greater picture of the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. But there's something else impossible, naturally speaking, that's brought up in this portion of Scripture that I want to bring out. Because we're talking about this idea of trusting God to do impossible things. And look at what it tells us next. It tells us in verses 16 and 17 that God can give life to the dead. Let me reread those verses. It says, That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Not too long ago, actually it was, very, it was probably within the past two weeks, I, I saw a video that was a, a testimony uh, from a woman who nearly died. And I don't remember everything that she said in it, but the gist of the video was this. She was talking about the fact that, um, you know, life was going great, you know, things were looking fine for her and for her husband and their family, and she had a day where all of a sudden, without warning, she experienced her heart stopping. Her heart stopped. Now, when I wake up in the morning and when I go to bed at night, I don't really think a lot about my heart stopping. It just kind of operates in the background, and I don't think a whole lot about it, and her heart stopped. And she was in a context where, where this was obvious that this was taking place, and people began working on her, and they were able to rush her to a hospital, and they, were, they kept performing CPR on her, and she said that, naturally speaking, they should have given up on her because she had flatlined. She was dead as far as they were concerned medically, and for whatever reason, she said, the doctor that was attending to her 
insisted that they continue to perform CPR. So they continued performing it long past when you would expect someone to just say, we tried our best and gave up. And in the midst of that, they finally were able to get her heart going again. And then they were able to do some surgery to, per- to repair whatever the medical issue was that had caused it to stop to begin with. And she lived, and others told her what happened, obviously, when she was unconscious and all of this was taking place. And one of the things that she had commented in that video was that she was so thankful that that doctor did not abandon her to death because nobody would have blamed him if he did. Everyone would have said, look, you tried your best, you did everything you could. And she said, I'm so glad, and I'm paraphrasing here, but effectively she said, so glad he did not abandon me to die. And I think it's interesting when we look at a portion of Scripture like we're looking at today, because in the spiritual sense, we can be very grateful that God did not abandon us to death. When you look at Romans chapter 4, particularly verse 17, that verse makes it clear that God gives life to the dead. But this life that He grants is an act of grace on His behalf. He grants life as an undeserved favor to those who trust in His Son, Jesus Christ. The promise of life rests on grace because we couldn't earn it, we don't deserve it. It's given to us as a gift as we trust in Christ. And in this passage, we're being told that we share Abraham's blessing if we likewise share his faith. The same God who can speak creation into existence and call things into being that did not exist a moment before can also bring life to those who are spiritually dead. We can see from Scripture that God delights to bring life to that which was dead. You can even see from some of the things that are referenced in this chapter. Sarah's womb. It was as good as dead, right? Yet she was blessed with the birth of Isaac, her first son at age 90. Age 90, there was something my wife showed me the other day, it's a video that I guess went viral, of a father uh, discovering later in life that he and his wife were about to have one more child. And It was a very, very funny video to watch because his predictions of what he thought that season of his life was going to look like looked slightly different from that point on. And so just watching that man wrestle with the news, well, imagine being 90. Imagine being 90. And yet... You know, the Scripture tells us, you know, Sarah's womb was, his, it was dead. And yet she was blessed with the birth of Isaac at age 90. Jesus Christ, he was placed in the tomb and was dead. And yet he was raised to life again. Scripture tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. You know, and it's interesting, it uses that, that word to describe us. It doesn't say we were, you know, messed up or we were you know, off on our own direction. It says we were dead. Spiritually speaking, we were dead in our trespasses and sin. And yet through faith in Jesus Christ, we're reborn to a new everlasting life. We currently inhabit the tent of a body that will wear out and die. And yet in Christ, we are promised the gift of a new body that will not be subject to pain or disease or death. God does the impossible task of giving life to the dead. And as He gives that life to us, He also does something else. Another impossible thing that you wouldn't expect naturally to happen. But He makes us alive and then He develops our strength. He makes us strong in faith. Look at what it says in verse 18 down to verse 21. It says, 
In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Isn't that a beautiful verse? Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. I heard something just when I was driving to the church this morning on the radio that said, uh, if you have a gym membership, you know how there's a price you can pay for a gym membership? Um, that if you're, or, well, really, even if you don't have a membership, there's usually a price a gym will let you pay just to come and exercise for just that day. And, uh, but most people pay for a monthly amount if you have a gym membership, right? If you have a gym membership, you just pay. It's like a monthly charge. Uh, but they said, on average, people tend to use their gym membership four times a month. So they pay for the month. They use it four times. For most people, it would probably be cheaper, depending on the gym, to just pay each time you went in. Now, some of you are uh, very well disciplined, and that would not be the case. You know, you get your money's worth. But for the average person, they said, it'd actually be cheaper if you just pay each time you went in instead of paying the monthly amount. When I was uh, in high school, I think it was in about 10th grade at the time, uh, I didn't have a gym membership, but I definitely wanted to grow in strength. So, guys, you could probably all identify with this. There's probably a season of your life where you thought, I need to become more invested in my strength. And I was like, all right, how am I going to do this? I had some weights, so I was able to use that. But then I thought, all right, there's, you know, I don't always have my weights with me. So wherever I am, I need to have kind of a routine. And I thought, all right, well, I'll do push-ups and sit-ups. And I thought to myself, all right, how many push-ups and how many sit-ups should I do every day? So I thought, all right, I'll do 100 push-ups and 100 sit-ups every day. And I made a promise to myself that if I skipped a day, whatever I skipped would carry over into the next day. And so I kept that, and that was kind of like the threat in my mind, where, look, if you skip, you're going to have to do 200 push-ups and 200 sit-ups tomorrow. Well, I went through a stretch of time uh, over the course of a week where I didn't do it at all. After, like, I got lax after a period of time. I was like, all right, here's the deal. Either you own it or you break the promise to yourself. And I remember one night, realizing, I was like, I've got to like clear this mental debt I have here. I've got to do 700 push-ups and 700 sit-ups. Now, I wish I could say I did 700 push-ups all in one shot. I didn't. But over the course of a while there that evening, I just, I destroyed myself doing all those push-ups. And then I did sit-ups so bad that I actually like, um, like injured the skin on my back doing that many uh, sit-ups. Uh, but I got it all done. And I was like, okay, I think I'm stronger now, right? Um, but what happens when you're doing that? Any kind of exercise that you're doing, you're, you're, what you're doing is you're, you're breaking down muscle, right? And then your body builds it back up stronger and bigger and makes you more prepared for the next time. And that's how muscle gets built as you're exercising, as you're working out. That's how you develop strength. You kind of break the muscle down through the exercise, then your body recuperates and builds it back stronger and better and nicer and more prepared for the next round. That's how God's designed the body. He's clearly invested in our strength. But then you look at a portion of scripture like this, and it reminds us that there's a deeper form of strength that the Lord is infinitely more concerned about than my physical strength or your physical strength. 
He wants us to be strong. Caring for our bodies is obviously very wise, and we want to do that as unto the Lord. But the greater form of strength that this portion of Scripture is pointing out is this idea of becoming strong in faith. And again, Abraham's being lifted up here as an example to us of what it looks like to follow that pattern. And for that spiritual muscle to develop, it needs to be worked out. It needs to be tested. God had been telling Abraham things that would have sounded embarrassingly silly if he had shared that with everyone he knew. There are a lot of people, I'm sure, in his life at that period of time that he could have shared these things with that they just would have laughed at him. It would have seemed comical for him to repeat the things that God had repeated to him because they seemed so far-fetched. Odds are most people would have probably tried to talk him out of believing these things. They would have pointed out to him how, like, how illogical some of these promises of God seemed. But hope doesn't always seem logical. You know, particularly if you've become adept to walking by sight, you look at you know, this idea of somebody with hope and you say, that's not logical. I walk by sight. I don't want to buy into that sort of thing. And yet, in the midst of all of that, the Scripture reveals to us that Abraham maintained hope. His faith did not weaken. He maintained hope in all of it. He believed that somehow God was going to make him the father of many nations, even though physically speaking, both he and his wife Sarah, through whom this blessing was also going to come, they were much closer to their day of death than they were to the day of their birth. And yet Abraham believed that God was going to do it somehow. God's um, amazing promises that he was revealing to Abraham here, these are things that did not cause Abraham's faith to weaken. The Scripture tells us his faith did not waver. It grew stronger as it was tested and it was stretched. Do you want that kind of faith? What do you think? Do you want that kind of faith? I'm seeing mostly nods. Um, Would you be bold enough to pray that God would grant us or grant you that kind of unwavering trust in Him? Would you be bold enough to pray that sort of thing? The reason I bring that up is because um, do do we realize what typically precedes that kind of faith? Do you ever think about this? Typically, the people in this world who possess the greatest trust in the Lord are also those who have watched Him faithfully carry them through the most miserable trials. Time and time again, He shows Himself faithful. But often we we learn He can be fully trusted when our faith is tested. That's when we start to learn that He can be fully trusted when He tests our faith. What's He doing? He's breaking down the old and building us up different. He's breaking down the old and he's building up that faith muscle through tests and through trials and through the type of things that many people in this world would say, Lord, please don't ever let something like that come my way. And yet in the same breath, we'll say, Lord, please strengthen my faith. And it's like, well, which do you want? Ease and a comfy chair to always sit on and no back pain and no scars on your body. You want that? You can have that. Lots of people have that. They invest all their time and energy and effort and mind into all that sort of thing? Or do you actually want a a strong faith, 
a faith that can handle tests, a faith that can handle seasons of adversity, a faith that can handle uncertainty, a faith that can trust God for things that you have not yet seen. If you want that kind of faith, there is a way to get it, but it's through tests and trials. It's not through a life of ease. It's not through trying to get rid of any source of discomfort or pain that we may experience in this world. It's not begging God constantly to give us relief from any level of discomfort. I think the Lord wants us to start praising Him in the midst of some of those times of discomfort because those are the things that He's actually using to develop a deeper trust in your heart for Him and to prove to your heart that He's all you ever really needed. I love what it tells us in James chapter 1. One of the first sermons I ever had the privilege to preach when I was a brand new speaker was from James chapter 1. And in that chapter, it says this, when you look at verses 2 and 3, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, if you're anything like me, it's a lot easier for me to praise the Lord for trials after they have concluded and everything tied together nicely in the end. And I'm like, oh, I see what you're doing now. Now that I'm healed up, it's much more difficult for me to praise the Lord in the midst of the trial. And yet you have James encouraging the church, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Not just after. You can count it all joy then too, but don't wait till after. Praise Him in the midst of it. Because What's He doing? He's showing you that He's sufficient. He's proving that your faith in Him is not misplaced. And He's developing it. And He's strengthening it. That's the kind of experience that Abraham went through. The Lord uprooted his life in many respects and yet taught Abraham that he, the Lord, was sufficient for him. One other thing that's miraculous and impossible that the Scripture points out that the Lord does in our life that we should praise Him for, and this is where we'll finish today, but God can make you righteous. Now, even before I read the closing verses that we're going to look at, I don't know what labels you place on yourself. I don't know what you call yourself. I don't know how you think of yourself. I don't know if you have a bad opinion of yourself or a good opinion of yourself. But in the eyes of God, the Scripture tells us that He delights to call us righteous. He delights to declare us righteous. He delights to make us righteous. Look at what it says in Romans 4, starting with verse 22, down to the end of the chapter. It says, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You know what that word justification means? It means to be declared righteous in God's courtroom. You know, we're declared righteous in the eyes of God, through faith in Jesus Christ. So no matter where you are in your life, no matter what you're currently struggling with, know this, God is willing to accept you. God is willing to welcome you into his family just as you are right now. In your present condition, there's nothing you need to clean up first. There's no agenda you have to take care of first. There's no checklist you have to cross off. If you trust in Jesus Christ You will be welcomed into the family of God, but He does not intend on leaving you in the condition that He found you in. His will is to transform you. His desire is to make you new. If you were once consumed with sin and rebellion 
and worldliness. He's not going to leave you in that spot. He's going to transform you. He's going to fill you with His righteousness if you genuinely trust in Him. He doesn't call you unto Himself and then leave you in the exact spot that He found you in. His goal is to sanctify you. His goal is to make you righteous. He justifies you as you trust in Him, and we walk with Him by faith. He wants to make you holy and blameless in His sight, and that's exactly how He sees you from the moment that you first come to Him through faith in Jesus Christ. When you stop trusting in whatever you used to trust in, whatever your sinful proclivities were, your areas of temptation, when you stop worshiping those things, you get rid of those things, you give... You give just you give your heart over to the Lord and you say, all right, Lord, I'm not going to worship that stuff anymore. I'm going to worship you. When you repent of your unbelief and you trust in Christ, he welcomes you into his family and he cleanses you of, of your sin and he does the impossible task of making you righteous in his sight. Jesus, the son of God, was delivered up to the religious and the political leaders of the day when he was here walking on the face of this earth, and he was executed by him, by them. The political leaders, the religious leaders, they saw to it that Christ was executed. So he who had no sin was crucified to atone for our sin. And then on the third day, Scripture tells us that he was raised from death for our justification. And Scripture tells us that all who trust in Christ are fully justified in God's sight. We are declared righteous in His courtroom. We are made righteous by His power. Again, transforming us to reflect His righteousness. And this is another impossible task that only God can accomplish. I love passages like this because passages like this are useful reminders to us that we need to reflect on as we walk through life in this world. You may have had a sordid past. I don't know the details of everyone's past in this room, and I guess you don't know all the details of my past either, but you may have had a sordid past, maybe a very difficult upbringing, maybe a lot of things that you used to buy into that you no longer buy into. But I'll tell you what, according to what the Scripture tells us, if you are in Christ, you are a new person. You're a new man. You're a new woman. You may currently, presently, right now, beat yourself up regularly and fill your mind with all kinds of negative self-talk and, and all sorts of garbage that are really just forms of accusation against yourself. But in the eyes of God, again, if you trust in Jesus Christ, you are declared blameless. You may tell yourself that in the midst of your current circumstances that all hope is lost, and then you look at what the Word of God tells us, and the Scripture reveals to us that Jesus Christ was raised from death just when it seemed like all hope was lost. And it also tells us that you will be too. If you trust in Jesus Christ, you too will raise from death. Your future in Christ is not bleak. Your righteousness is not secured through your effort. It's secured in Jesus Christ who grants it to you as a gift. It's not given to us through earning it. It's not given to us through trying to navigate our life on this earth without making any sort of a mistake. Anyone here a perfectionist? You don't have to raise your hand, um, although some of you did. But I told you, you didn't have to. You broke your perfectionist streak. Sometimes when we're perfectionists, we think that our goal in life is to make it through mistake-free. And then you get to that moment and you make a mistake and somehow you start accusing and castigating yourself. And then you look at a portion of Scripture like this and what does it reveal to us? 
that righteousness was never given to you through your effort. The only reason you would ever be declared righteous in the eyes of God is through trusting in Jesus Christ who will give you His righteousness as a gift. The goal of life is not to make it through mistake-free. The goal of life is to trust in Christ and glorify Him. And one day, He will make you and me and all who trust in Him perfect completely in His sight, in a new body, no longer struggling with sin, no longer struggling with temptation, no longer struggling with all the things that we've struggled with right now. God does impossible things. That's what the Scripture is revealing to us. He does impossible things, and He wants us to trust Him in all circumstances. Whatever you're going through right now, whatever you're going to go through 10 years from now, He wants you to trust Him in impossible circumstances. Don't disparage your tests. Don't disparage your trials, because they're useful tools that the Lord uses to confirm this fact to your heart over and over and over again that, until it fully sinks in that you and I, that we can trust Him in the midst of impossible circumstances. He can be relied on. He can trust. He can be trusted. So we finish up. Um, let me just say this. In just a moment, we have a really wonderful privilege to celebrate the baptisms of three individuals from our congregation that have trusted in Christ. And as Christ has encouraged us to, to do, we make that we, we declare that publicly through baptism. And so in just a few moments, we're going to have three people from our congregation join me up here, and we're going to celebrate their baptisms together. And if we're thrilled over what Christ has done in our life, let's also be thrilled in what Christ has done in their lives. So as they make their public profession of faith, what I want you to do is this. I want you to snap pictures of them, I want you to clap loudly for them, and I want you to remember to pray for them as they walk with Christ and learn this lesson. All three are young people, and they're going to have to learn this lesson over and over again, just like those of us who are older have to learn this lesson over and over and over again, that God can be trusted in every circumstance of life. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace and all of your blessings. Lord, we know that in the midst of this world, we wrestle with all sorts of things. We know, Lord, that each one of us can point to areas of our lives where we recognize that we have struggled to trust you. We have attempted to put our faith in substandard things. We've tried to put our faith in our efforts. We've tried to put our faith in the things that this world supplies. And yet, those things have all fallen short. You are the only one who comes through for us. Lord, we're grateful that you do impossible things, including making those who were dead alive and those who were unrighteous, righteous. And you accomplish this as we place our trust in your son, Jesus Christ. And just as Abraham was reckoned as righteous or declared righteous or counted as righteous in your sight when he trusted in you, that same promise, that same blessing is available for all those who do likewise. And so, Lord, we're grateful that you desire to make us righteous. We pray that our faith in you would be strong. And, Lord, we likewise commit the young people that today are being baptized, that are making this public profession of their faith in you. We commit them to you, and we pray, Lord, that you'd keep their faith growing 
and strong and developing all throughout the course of their lives and that they would give you the glory as they've watched as you've proven yourself faithful to them over and over again. Convince us of the same things, Lord, we pray. And we commit ourselves to you now and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.